All right, guys, welcome to the show. So today I'm chatting with uh, Jimmy Bagley. So first off, Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited for our talk today. Uh, I know you're kind of the muscle master guy. Do you want to just start out uh, by introducing yourself and telling the listeners a little bit about kind of what you've been doing and what you, uh, who you are? Yeah. Um, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Um, seems like a pretty cool show. Um, so yeah, I'm Dr. Jimmy Bagley. Uh, I'm a professor at San Francisco State University in the Department of Kinesiology. Been here for about five years now, and I run our muscle physiology lab, and I'm a co-director of our strength and conditioning lab that we just opened a couple years ago. So it's kind of cool. Our program is really applied, but also we do some basic science. So I kind of have a little bit of background on both. So I know you're all interested in how muscles grow and how they change and adapt. That's what we're into too. And then kind of translating that over to the real world. So um, that's what we've been doing. I got my PhD um, um, 2015, 14, <laughs> like time's going by so fast, especially <laughs> with COVID times. I'm like, what day is it? Um, but uh, yeah, back in Indiana, I was at Ball State University. Uh, they have the longest running human performance lab in the country. And uh, that's where I met Dr. Andy Galpin. And you know, ever since then, we've been doing the muscle research thing out here in California. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my background. I teach exercise physiology for undergrads and I teach muscle physiology for grad students. And um, I'm teaching a, a general ed class. It's about fitness and wellness. And we kind of call it baby X-Phys. So we kind of get into some of the X-Phys principles for non-majors, but that's it. I do a lot of research, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a, a little bit too. Can you start out by giving us an overview on basic muscle physiology? Like how does muscle growth actually occur? I know Brad Schoenfeld initially, I think it was back in 2011, um, kind of put out that paper talking about the the primary mechanisms and since then there's been quite a bit of headway um so so i just love to hear your input on uh some of the new updates to some literature yeah um so muscle hypertrophy that's what everybody's after right you want to get bigger you want to get stronger um you know basically what people have always known i mean go back to ancient times what were roman gladiators doing they were picking up heavy rocks dropping them, picking them up, dropping I mean, people have been lifting since the beginning of time and they didn't necessarily know why it made them bigger, but it did. So your body adapts. Um, you know, I, I think that you can look at it from kind of the metabolic adaptations and the, um, kind of the stress on the muscle, the mechanical stress. So there's kind of two ways the muscle can grow. The, the best way to make it grow, obviously, is mechanical stress. So you've got to lift something heavier than you're used, used to over time, and, and then the muscle cells will grow. But I think this is kind of a good time to talk about how muscle cells are different than other cells in your body. So think about your body's full of cells. And I know, you know, most of us, unless you're a biology major or something, when you think of cell, you might think of something else like, a you know, a cell in a prison or something, but it's basically just that it's encased enclosed kind of a closed system. Muscle cells are these long cylinders, right? They're kind of look like um, piece of spaghetti as you can think of it. Uh, and they just pull on both ends. So that's kind of how muscles work. Other cell types, you know, if you were in biology as a kid and you had the circle like a pizza where you've got, you know, mitochondria would be a pepperoni and all this kind of stuff. Some cells look like that. Some cells look like skin cells, bone cells, all this. But what makes muscle cells way different than most cells is that they have uh, multiple nuclei. Right. So one one cell usually have, has one nucleus. Muscle cells are called syncytial, which means they have multiple nuclei. Some muscle cells, also called muscle fibers, have thousands of nuclei there. And these nuclei where all your DNA is stored and the DNA is what is responsible for creating eventually RNA and then proteins. Proteins is what build your muscle up. Right. So you want to have a bunch of these contractile proteins built up over time. Um, and the cool thing with having all these nuclei is that these signals can be sent really quickly and you can adapt and change really quickly. So if people are like me and have, you know, no access to a barbell for a few months, you'll notice your adaptations, your muscles get smaller. Right. Like you can lift a little bit, do body weight stuff. But if you're doing something different, whether it's growing or shrinking, it's because your muscles are just adapting to what. Um, kind of what the body or what your exercise or non-exercise routine, um, what happens there. So, you know, that's kind of like the basics of what your, your, um, you know, audience probably already knows if they're lifting weights, kind of what happens, but the mechanisms behind it, that's, what's kind of changing a lot. I mean, I don't know. Do you want to get into kind of the myonuclear domain theory hypothesis? Yeah, that, that's something that's definitely interesting because that's kind of had, had quite a bit of a shift over the last couple of years as well. So take it away. Yeah. So, I mean, we were kind of emailing back and forth a little bit about there's this idea and it's been called the myonuclear domain theory and hypothesis. Um, 
I guess is also a good time. What's the difference between a theory and a hypothesis? A hypothesis is, you know, educated guess. A theory would be a theoretical framework of how something works. So I think now we're calling it the myonuclear domain hypothesis because things have changed a lot, like you said, in the last few years. But the whole idea behind this is that, you know, as your muscles get bigger, let's say you go through like an eight or 12 week hypertrophy training program, you're just trying to get big, your muscle cells will get bigger and they'll probably add new nuclei. So these new nuclei are added through stem cells in your muscles. The stem cells are called satellite cells. They cruise around the outside of the muscle um, and they can add new nuclei there. And then that, again, the idea is that more nuclei can make your muscle adapt faster and grow bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, to a certain point where you're going to have a ceiling effect. Uh, and then let's say COVID happens and you detrain for three or four months. You know, you do relatively nothing. Maybe you're still exercising, but not lifting for hypertrophy anymore. Your muscle cells will get smaller. But the idea with the myonuclear domain hypothesis is that a lot of those nuclei are left over. So your muscle cells grow, you add nuclei, your muscle cells shrink, but you still got these nuclei in the muscle. So next time you go to exercise, theoretically, you can grow faster. So I guess that's the moral of the story now. If, if this hypothesis is true that, you know, you should be able to detrain and retrain much faster than your initial training period. And, you know, this is what people thought. I think, like you said, for, I mean, the last probably 10 or 15 years, it's been a hot topic. People have been talking about it like that. But some recent research, it's come out of the University of Kentucky. One of my um, colleagues and friends, who's actually my roommate in PhD school, was uh, Dr. Kevin Murak. And he's coming out with a lot of research now that's suggesting that maybe those nuclei when your muscle shrinks don't stick around as long as people thought they did. Maybe they actually go away. But we still know that you can grow faster after you've you know, already had that kind of growth experience, even though you've shrunk. So maybe the nuclei aren't telling the whole story. You know, some of the ideas are now that it could be other little signaling molecules called microRNAs that stick around that help you grow later. It could be that you make a bunch of, here's another organelle to remember from biology, ribosomes. The ribosomes are the protein builders that build proteins up. Maybe you create a bunch more ribosomes that are stuck around. These things are just, you know, new to look at. And, all, and again, all these studies have also only been done in animal models. It's really hard to do this kind of stuff in humans, which is what... I've been trying to do with Dr. Andy Galpin down at Fullerton, but, um, you know, it's hard to get people to say that we can chop their legs off after they're done lifting for six weeks or whatever <laughs> and do that. So with, with animals, you can do a lot more basic science to get at these questions. But I guess the kind of the answer of this myonuclear domain hypothesis is that it's kind of muddied. The, the research, we're right in the middle now of a ton of stuff happening. And in my class, I teach this muscle physiology class. In 2016, I was telling you, this happens. You get nuclei and then they stick around forever and that's it. Now I'm like, I don't think that's the case. And probably it could be the case in some people, but probably not. It's probably something else going on that's even deeper down the rabbit hole. So that's kind of like the gist of where we are now with that field. Is there one particular or maybe, you know, a handful of particular uh, theories that seem to be leading the, the charge in, in the new direction that this seems to be going in? Yeah, and it's really all related to the methods that are being used to look at the muscle cells themselves. Mm -hmm. um, um, I guess I can kind of go back. We wrote a paper a couple years ago. Um, one of my graduate students, Stephen Maycheck, he's down at Baylor now getting his PhD. But we looked at, it was a case study on an elite power lifter um, who was also on anabolic steroids for a long time, documented. And um, we found a muscle fiber in there. We found a lot of really big fibers, as you can imagine. But one of the muscle cells was way, way bigger than any cells that I've ever seen and probably one of the biggest in the literature. So if a normal muscle fiber is like 80 micrometers in diameter, just think about that, 80 microns, this was over 200 microns in diameter. Oh, Huge. Wow. Um, I mean, like if you were going to do it on a scale of like the biggest fibers ever, this would be, you know, it's bigger than a rhinoceros fiber. It's bigger than an elephant's muscle fiber, like, and it came from a human. Um, and this might be kind of the idea of the stuff that we need to look at in humans like so if this fiber is huge it had a lot of nuclei but what else does it have going on in there how many ribosomes does this thing have like what kind of micro rnas are going on in this to keep this right. cell so big so i think what we're what we're seeing right is the nuclei maybe tell part of the story but it's those are kind of e easy to see with our technology we use confocal microscopy that kind of can do a 3d image of the of the fiber and if your listeners are interested you can just go on youtube and search for um 
confocal microscopy explained, and I did a, a little video to talk about how we do it. But the more technology we get like this, next I'm like, can we look at ribosomes? Can we count these things? Can, you know, like as the technology gets better, I think we'll start getting some of these answers of actually why they grow so they can grow right. so big. That test was that done on Mark Bell because I know Andy Galpin. Uh, took some muscle biopsies from him a while back. Mm -hmm. Is that is that who you're talking about, or is it someone else? Well, let's just say I can't say because it's a okay. subject. But um, <laughs> I think you're on the right track. I think you know. Think about somebody of Mark Bell's size, that right. big uh, and strong, and also like pretty much bodybuilding as well. Like think about the whole package of a big right. yeah. human. Um, yeah, and that's kind of like we're trying to get a hold of people like that. But you can imagine people don't want to give away even a little bit of their muscle if they're in the middle yeah. of a competition. So we, a lot of times, like we're waiting for people to just finish competition. You know, maybe they're just they're not too old yet, but they're still at peak peak condition. Was was that the initial intention of the of the research, or was that just kind of an adjacent finding that sort of led to this new branch of of uh, study? Yeah, we were initially trying to count the nuclei and seeing how many per, you know, another thing is when you split apart muscle cells, you don't just have one cell type, right? You've got fast twitch and slow twitch and some right. intermediate kinds. And so we go myosin heavy chain is the protein that we use to, to kind of classify these, but we've got type one, type two A and type two X. And our initial goal was to see, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of fiber types these kind of athletes have. And that's what, you know, Andy Galpin's research, a lot of it, I've been part of some of that is looking at powerlifters, Olympic lifters, a lot of CrossFit athletes that have been understudied in the last few decades of exercise physiology research and seeing what the baseline is. But then when I came across this giant fiber, I counted the nuclei, it was, I mean, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but let's just say this giant fiber looked proportionally like a normal size fiber in everything we could see visually. But we, again, we still don't know some of these signaling pathways, how many ribosomes and, and stuff like that is going on there. So that was unexpected. I didn't imagine we'd find a 200 plus micron fiber in a human. No, that's definitely really interesting. It opens up a lot of, uh, a lot of really unique questions, I guess, down the road. Then in that case, like, how is muscle growth impacted uh, by both biological age and training age? I mean, like, so let's think it's like training age. There's going to be a certain point where you're going to plateau. Like, I don't know how many years you've been lifting, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty hard for you once you're as big as you're going to get to get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, biological age could probably, you know, that depends on what biological age you're talking. If you're a man and you're under 40, you might not see a huge difference between somebody that's 30 and 40. You might see a bigger difference if somebody that's 18 or 20 compared to 40. Mm -hmm. even if your training age is two, three years, whatever the same. But then once you get over middle age, middle age is kind of the years where you don't have a lot of information on people. You can think in research studies in humans, they're mostly done at colleges. So you find, you know, 22 year old average physically fit people, or you study old people because that's what people want to figure out. So we have a lot of data on 75 year olds, a lot of data on 20 year olds, but not much in between. Um, so I think those are great questions too. I think we need to study more how, let's say you've got five years of training as a 45 year old versus five years of training as a, you know, 30, 30 year old. Is there going to be any difference? I don't know. It's kind of, it depends on so many other factors, but those are good questions. Is there a particular sort of age where I guess muscle fibers start to differentiate a little bit? I was, I was talking with, with Andy, like you mentioned on a previous podcast, and he was talking about how he did the twin study. Um, and if any of you guys are interested, you can go back and, and listen to that episode. But essentially, they, you know, found two twins and, and tested uh, their muscle fiber types. And so if these are identical twins, everything should be pretty much the same. They've got the same genetics. Um, but there is like an, a massive difference between the two. And, and so I was just wondering, like, when does that... I know the plasticity is, is there, I guess, for quite a long time, but is there a certain age where you really start to see like a differentiation in terms of someone being more type one, more type two or more hybrid? That's also a good question. I think, well, I'll tell you one thing. When you turn, I guess, because we're going biological age, let's just say the average 75 year old, 
Mm-hmm. Be, something something happens to your muscles and to all your cells between like age 70 and 80, which it's going to be different for everybody. Maybe 68 might be 82, whatever, but where your muscles aren't going to adapt like they used to. And that's a, you know, a function of a lot of things. Hormonal changes, of course, these are pretty easy things to measure, but just the way the cells replicate and all this stuff starts to slow down. And so you're not going to be able to adapt as much. And let's say you're, everything slows down. You look at a, a, a physically fit 75 year old, they're still not going to be moving as fast as they were when they were 65 or 55 or 45. So you'd assume that their fiber type would be shifting to a slower twitch, right? That's kind of like the logical assumption. But what we're finding is with older people that their fiber types actually shift to a faster phenotype, which you're like, that doesn't make any sense. They're not moving fast at all. But what seems to be happening is all their slow twitch fibers. Like right now I'm, I'm standing, you know, sitting, standing, whatever you're doing, you're only using type one fibers. You're only using these slow twitch fibers. Um, And kind of what's happening is the slow twitch fiber pool of these older people starts to decrease the less activity that they do. And then it starts to shift to more hybrid or these kind of 2A, 2X fibers. And then a lot of the times those fibers end up like disappearing. So what people have thought for a long time is that this fiber type shift from slow to fast and to being out of there as you age is not really related to their movement patterns. That's probably a lot more neurological, but the muscle fibers themselves aren't being used so much that the body doesn't want to keep them around. Because as you know, muscles super... Uh, metabolically active. If you're not eating a lot, you're going to lose muscle mass no matter what you're doing. As you get older, if you're not moving a lot, you're going to lose muscle mass. And it seems like this might be kind of like an exit strategy for fibers to die is if they're either not innervated anymore by a motor neuron or they just kind of move out. So you will see in everybody, you'll see a shift from slow to fast when you get super old. This is actually probably controversial too because animal data doesn't necessarily show this. So if you have any animal physiologists on there, they might say that's the exact opposite. So I kind of got to the point of uh, what's my, uh, <laughs> I guess, against the grain research thing is. But right. as you age in humans, what you'll see is, yeah, the fiber types get faster, but they're not usable. Like they're not fibers that you want still. I've had the belief personally that a lot of the age-related stuff with regards to performance is really overplayed. Like, I I think that that stuff is really relevant, obviously, at elite levels, where you see all the Olympic champions for weightlifting are, like, you know, 20 to 24, something like that, Mm -hmm. right? And then all the powerlifting champions are kind of, like, somewhere in their mid-30s or 40s or something like that. And so those profiles make sense. But the idea that, you know, someone's 30 or 40 and therefore they need a a different style of training program just never really seemed to make sense to me. I was always like, I just don't, I don't believe that, you know, Yeah, because I agree even, even anecdote, you just don't ever see that. Like there's, there's no shortage of really jacked older dudes. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I mean, so I, I guess it kind of like makes sense with everything that you're saying. Yeah, I agree. I think the one thing I would say with that too, is um, the one thing you might change is re- recovery and rest as you get older, right, even in yeah. your thirties and forties, but you're not going to lift any lighter. You're not going to lift any less volume. It's just going to be a lot of timing things. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, again, related to as you age, just the ability to recover. If you take an 18, 19 year old and you get injured I mean, you're going to be like, back within a few weeks or months. If you get that same injury when you're 40, it might just take longer. So if you have someone who's predominantly type one or type two and they lose a bunch of muscle or they lose, you know, an appreciable amount of muscle, let's say because of COVID or, or something along those lines, and then they regain that, do they have a natural predisposition to regaining the same fiber type? I'm trying to think of any data because I'm just going to keep giving you like my what I think, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but I can't think of any actual data that's like that. That's actually a good question. But I'm pretty sure that you kind of have a program like your like a program in your muscle. Let's say that my program is actually I'm a little bit more predominantly slow twitch. I've been biopsied like 35 times. So and when you're a student <laughs> in a PhD program that does biopsies, uh, my legs, I got track marks up my quads and my soleus. But um my fiber type, even when I was training, was never my fat on my thigh, at least my vastus lateralis was always about 60, 65% type one. Um, if I were to train really heavy and fast, that might go down to like 45 or 50% type one. If I were to detrain, I think it would just be whatever my kind of program said. So that's your really genetic predisposition is super important, but that doesn't mean you can't change it. So you mentioned that study that was actually done. Um, the twin study was 
uh, Bathgate 2018. So Katie Bathgate was one of our graduate students at the time. She did the study on these identical twins and their fiber type was 55% different. You know, one of them had like, you know, 90% type ones and the other one was like below 50% type ones. Genetically, they should be clones of each other. But with 40 years of endurance training, that just shifted this guy's fiber type like that much farther. But, you know, so I, I think you, like, the short answer to your question is you have a genetic predisposition that can shift back and forth, but the amount that it can shift also depends on your genetics too. So you might be one of the lucky ones that can go either direction, but some of us are kind of stuck. Like, I don't think I'll ever be a sprinter, but I could probably maybe shift my fiber type to be more of a distance or endurance athlete just based on how I was born. Started, I think in the last maybe two years to become more familiar with a lot of the research on genetics and more, I guess, towards the side of behavior. Uh, Cause I tend to find that stuff a little bit more interesting. It's a little bit more fringe, um, especially in like diet and diet culture and stuff like that. Um, but the more that I read into it, the more shocked I am at just how much control genetics plays over everything that mm -hmm at least to me, wasn't necessarily even, um, wasn't intuitive, you know, like mm -hmm. the level of willpower, even your, your perception of pain, all sorts of different things. And I, I thought that was incredibly interesting. And uh, one thing that I've always been interested in is someone's genetic capacity relative to, you know, the whole nature versus nurture kind of conversation, right? So if mm -hmm. someone, if someone has, you know, like a genetic limit, but then they spend, like you were saying, 20, 30 years developing uh, certain athletic qualities to, to pursue, you know, co competition. How much of a difference can they actually make, right? Like, I understand that if you don't have the genetics, you're never going to be NFL superstar. You're never going to be world's strongest man. But mm -hmm. how far can we push that ceiling? And as you do push that ceiling, as you do push your potential, do you almost create, do you almost raise where that limit is the further you push? That's a great question. What a study, well, I guess it's a series of studies that tried to answer that, uh, I, not related to hypertrophy and muscle, but they were looking at VO2 max. So your ability to use oxygen, um, uh, it's, you know, an endurance measure, but it still tells you how much muscle mass you have. If you have a, a lot of oxygen use, you've got to have a lot of muscle. Um, I guess the point is they did this study called the heritage family study where they looked at it families. So let's say you've got four brothers and sisters and your parents, they would measure your physiological capacity every year for 10, 15, 20 years. I think this went on for 50 plus years till you have kids and then they measure their genetic potential and stuff like that. And finding that out of, you know, you've got a hundred families, there's a few of these families that have super high ability to adapt. Like they'll start a training program and they will get super fast or super good endurance. And then you've actually got this small percentage of people that are one or 2% of the families that won't adapt at all. And some of them actually even got worse uh, physiologically than they did in the beginning. That's really rare. And it's probably, people call them non-responders, probably not non-responders. They're just not responding to that actual, whatever the exercise program was. But most people fall in the middle, like, like everything, there's a bell curve. And how much can you adapt? Like how much can you shift your fiber type? That's also based on genetics. So where you start is based on genetics. And then like, let's say you can shift 50% fast twitch versus your twin brother. That's also genetic. So I think that this, this twin set that we got, they're probably on that higher level of where you, if we got that untrained twin to chart training, I think he could shift up closer to where his brother was. But what if we found some other brothers that were divergent for 20, 30 years and they only had 10 or 15% difference in fiber type, you know, it's just, it's so dependent on these genetic markers. And I think that's where people get frustrated because like, how much can I change? How much can I, you know, after five years of lifting, I should be able to lift more or, or whatever. We don't know. It's like all dependent on the individual. It's so crazy, but that's, it's a sad answer and nobody wants to hear that, but it's so dependent on the person. Yeah, sometimes I think answers like that are almost better if you don't know them. Mm -hmm. In some cases, like I remember reading a, an interview on, um, oh, I can't remember what his name was. This was like maybe seven years ago. But I think he was one of the founding uh, founding guys of like Mensa or, or the IQ test or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he said that he had never had his IQ test. 
uh, done? And they were like, why not? And he's like, because I know the data on it and I know how much it correlates to <laughs> quality of life. So he's like, I never want to take it because it's only has the potential to do negative to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really hilarious. But at the same time, it, it really makes a lot of sense, you know, um, if there's only potentially a negative outcome that can come from knowing that. Yeah. I mean, the, and the other thing is you won't know your potential till you try. So that's another right, thing you yeah. could tell people if you have clients and you're training them and they're like, I don't seem to be changing. Well, it's not them. Maybe it's the, the training program you got going. Maybe they just aren't mm-hmm. one of those responders. They need a little different rest period or, or whatever it is. So there's always answers. It's just not clear cut. <laughs> no, 100%. And I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. Like I, I never go around telling people like, Hey, look, I did it. So you can do it too. Because when I first started lifting weights, I was uh, trying to think in pounds. I was 165 pounds. And Mm -hmm. at my biggest, I was 295. And now I'm 265. And then I'm going back up to 300 again, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty dramatic difference. But at the same time, I obviously have a natural predisposition for for putting on muscle, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think it's accurate to say, hey, if I did it, you can. But at the same time, I do think that it's accurate to say, hey, I had no idea that I could do this. And pretty much if you were to look at me, you'd be like, yeah, you're a dummy. You're never going to be big and jacked or strong or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like you said, you never really know until you try. When it comes to muscle fiber type, uh, one of the things that I spoke about with, with Andy briefly that he, he just kind of mentioned it as an aside that uh, I thought was pretty interesting was that muscle fiber type doesn't necessarily correlate very strongly with strength, um, which was surprising at first. And then when he gave the rationale, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? Because there's a bunch of, you know, other factors that can impact things like that. So uh, can you go over what some of those other factors are that allow someone to actually utilize the force they're generating from the muscles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point that you would think that fast twitch fibers would be stronger, right? But what we find in humans, at least, is what dictates a muscle fiber strength um, So let's say, you know, if I have a muscle fiber and I attach it to a force transducer and a little anchor and I start pulling on it, I can, you know, measure how much force it can produce. Um, If we had a fiber that was a slow twitch and a fast twitch and they're the exact same size, they're actually going to probably put out the same amount of force, like same size and diameter. So really the main thing for force production or strength is cross-sectional area. Same thing you do, you know, you measure somebody's, you know, biceps or just do a circumference measure that correlation is going to go pretty strong bicep curls. If you have a bigger bicep, it's just going to be correlate to a stronger lift or whatever. So the main thing is cross-sectional area. Now that can come from getting the fibers bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a certain point, And I think the ceiling for muscle fiber size is probably pretty close to that 200 micron fiber I was talking about. Um, but there's another thing that, you know, everybody's super interested in is hyperplasia, which means increasing the number of cells that you have. And, you know, in humans, that definitely happens in babies as you grow older. You're not born with the amount of fibers that you have now. So through development, you can grow new fibers. But as you get older, like if you're in your 30s and 40s, can you create new fibers? I think probably yes in humans, but it probably is not the biggest predictor, biggest impact on hypertrophy of the whole muscle. So I think, you know, bottom line is if you want a strong muscle, you just have to have bigger fibers. And that's kind of what we see in these these power lifters that they've got pretty big fibers compared to the average person someone let's say someone reaches their genetic potential as a natural athlete bodybuilder powerlifter whatever and they decide to use peds so so steroids or other performance enhancing substances what what happens like what what happens to allow them to actually create larger muscles to to really push that limit and and reach you know these crazy 200 micron uh uh, muscle fibers. It's it's basically what happens naturally, just um, next gear. So say you're in fourth gear, it's shifting up to the fifth gear to get a little bit bigger. But I guess that in a kind of a physiological sense is what happens is your body's producing testosterone all the time. Men and women have testosterone. Men typically have a lot more. If you're uh, using some type of exogenous testosterone or some kind of supplement or PED that increases the amount of testosterone or testosterone-like anabolic hormone in your body, it's going to send messengers down into the cell, affect the nucleus, and then the nucleus will send these little messengers out too and just say, hey, we need to 
grow this muscle bigger and bigger, especially if you're lifting. If you're taking PEDs and not eating and not lifting, you're probably not going to change in the way you're thinking. So you still got to obviously do all that. But then at some point, that muscle fiber gets so big, I think that the limit of how big it can get is probably like physics. You know, if you think about each muscle fiber, it's this long cylinder and it's so big, they're only innervated by one neuron. So every muscle fiber is attached to one neuron. One neuron is attached to hundreds or thousands of muscle fibers. So let's say that you send, you know, you contract your bicep really quickly. What your neuron does is send a signal down to that muscle fiber and then it doesn't, you know, it's kind of attached to the middle of the fiber. That has to send a signal across the entire fiber all the way around to tell it to contract at almost the same time. Now all this happens in split milliseconds. Um, but you can imagine as the fiber gets bigger and bigger, at some point, the physics of electrical conduction is going to be so slow that it's not efficient to contract anymore. That's probably when your body's going to say, like, this muscle fiber is too big. We need to make another one. That might be where you get the hyperplasia in. Now, how much that happens in humans, like I said, it's almost impossible with our current technology to figure it out. But, you know, I think that that whole, like, if you take it to the next level and are doing PEDs and, and lifting as much as you can, at some point physics is going to be the and if like for you you said you could get up to 300 pounds i mean i'm like 510 i don't think my body frame could get up to 300 pounds no matter what i do potentially maybe i don't know i've never tried but it's also based on the physics of your structural anatomy too so i think microphysics macrophysics that's going to be limiting you know if you're trying to get to that elite elite level Right. So essentially God just says you're too jacked. You can't, you can't get any bigger. <laughs> yeah. Like we can't, God can't change the physics that God created. Right. So it's like, well, I can't make that electrical impulse go any faster down the fiber. So we need a new fiber. So, yeah. so that's really interesting because I've heard um, a similar response from, from someone else actually from Greg Knuckles. Um, basically he was talking about like the, you know, the nucleus of the cell and, once it starts expanding, just the structural integrity, he was saying, he's like, and I think he heard this from someone else. And so I, I think we're playing a little bit of telephone, so mm -hmm. I don't want to misrepresent. So maybe I'm totally bastardizing this, but essentially he was saying something similar about just like the, the literally the structural integrity, just it, it can't support, um, almost can't support itself. Yeah, I think that's probably like every cell, you know, you don't want your cells to get super big. That's cancer. That's like a growth, right? If it just keeps exponentially growing, yeah, right? Sure. So your cells are supposed to be a certain size. And once you get to that limit, like that's, that's how big they can get. And I think as, as far as adding new nuclei, that might be a limiting factor for, a, you know, a normal non-athletic person. But maybe when you get to these elite bodybuilders and stuff, the limiting factor is not actually the nuclei number. It's more of you know, ribosomes or these other signaling pathways that are, that are like topped out. And again, at some point, everybody's going to top out. Just, I guess your goal is to get to that point, like see where it is, right. With right. whatever you're doing. And that's all you can really hope for unless we start doing gene doping. And that's a whole nother tangent we can get onto too, but that's happening. I think. Wow. Yeah. I mean, genetic, like basically you can change your genes, um, through a, a viral vector or some other way to get into your DNA to change your genes to express certain things. So people are doing it. I just, I think in the last couple Olympics or they've been trying to test for it. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to be what you're seeing in the future. It's not just taking an exogenous steroid or something. It's going to be genetically modifying people. That is so cool. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, when you're genetically modifying people, what you, there's a way you can do it and it's, just on yourself. So let's say you injected something into your muscle to change that muscle itself. You'd probably have to continue injecting it because your muscles turn over. There's another way of gene doping, which would be changing like, a, you know, an egg and a, a sperm and editing it there. Then that whole human that's is going to be changed forever. That's totally illegal. Um, somebody in China tried it a couple of years ago and the guy disappeared. <laughs> you hear about that yeah, with CRISPR? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, people have been cloning sheep and stuff for decades. There's no reason you can't clone humans and change them. It's just super unethical. Like you don't have the, you know, informed consent of that person to say, can we change you? Cause they're not born yet. So that's the ethical dilemma you're in. Man, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I want to try it now, but I don't know if, would you do it if it would change your offspring forever and you're planning on having kids, you know, because you don't know the outcomes. Like that's the... Ah, uh, whatever. That's, that's, that's yeah, a that's future Daniel road. problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
that's really cool that uh that that i guess it's getting to that level i mean i know we're kind of like off on a little bit of a tangent but <laughs> I, I would love to learn more about that stuff i'm gonna have to do a little bit of a, a google deep dive for the next yeah bit. do some digging <laughs> on crispr cas9 that's the mechanism that people use to gene edit now it's so easy i mean if you just look up some videos um Dr. Jennifer Doudna, she's at UC Berkeley here, yeah. California, and she's the one that one of the ones that discovered this mechanism that happens in bacteria. But it's a way you can just basically send some scissors into your nucleus, say chop, chop. I want to add some more hypertrophy genes, and then I mean you could do that like in a cell culture pretty easily. So just doing it in humans, the only the thing you have to do is can that stick around? You have to like inject yourself every day, or every, you know, how long does does this editing mechanism work? But it's possible, man. It's getting crazy. By the next decade or two, there's going to be crazy stuff happening. Some of the things that I think a lot of people hear about are mTOR signaling and AMPK signaling. And I think there's a lot of confusion as to what both of those mean, at least. So I'm not on social media all that much. Like I create content, but I very, very rarely actually go on there. But it seems like every time that I do see a post on these things, there seem to be quite a bit of misconceptions about what they are and their role in uh, muscle hypertrophy and, and just how that whole kind of signaling process and, and cascade works. Can mm -hmm. you uh, give a bit of a description of what both of those are and how they impact uh, hypertrophy? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, these are things that are really cool to study and talk about. And we talk about them in class and stuff too. Maybe people online are confused like, well, how do I activate mTOR? Be like, I don't think you need to worry about how you activate mTOR. Just that's what's happening. Like, yeah. like so, you know, so you've got, let's say, a program for endurance exercise, and we'll call that the AMPK program. And then you've got a program for hypertrophy or muscle growth, and that's your mTOR program. These are two cascades that if you eat a lot and you lift and your muscles are happy, they have enough energy mTOR is going to switch on and that's going to say, we need to grow. Like we have to get the muscle bigger. We're, you know, there's a lot of stress going on here, but we have enough food. Like we have enough energy. What happens is if you were to, let's say overtrain or you increase your volume so much, you're going to kick on mTOR, but you're probably also going to kick on this molecule called AMPK. And that turns on when energy is low in the cell. So let's say I've lifted a lot, but um, the muscles saying this, I'm not saying your muscles saying I've, I've lifted a lot of stuff, but I don't have the energy I need to get bigger. AMPK is going to switch on and be like, we need to find energy somewhere else. And when that switches on, that's going to kind of inhibit the growth mechanism. Your muscle will protect itself if it thinks it's low on energy or if it is actually low on energy. So these are like two competing, again, pathways, like you said, but they're always happening all the time. So like, do you have to worry about if you're turning on mTOR, like how many, you know, if you eat 21 versus 22 grams of protein after your exercise, they're probably both going to turn on mTOR. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, that's my answer to that question. We could actually, I could pull up the pathways we could walk down and figure out which interacts with which, but those are questions that people are doing in research, like real basic science type stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, the pathways are always slightly different. We know that, you know, AMPK is what you know, Andy Galpin was studying, looking at CrossFit athletes after high intensity interval training. And I was helping out with the study a little bit, but after you do hit training or something like that, and you don't eat AMPK has got to get turned on because your muscles are like, I'm running out of energy. So that's going to probably decrease that growth, you know, thing. But again, they, they go back and forth and they're always happening all the time. Coming back to muscle fiber types, then does an athlete who has predominantly type one or type two muscle fibers, do they have different like substrate utilization profiles or, or preferences, I guess, because I guess for me intuitively, it would, it would make sense that if you've got a higher type of uh, type two muscle fiber, you probably perform a little bit better on a higher carbohydrate diet because um, of, of the glycolytic requirements. I, I don't know, like, am I completely off base on that or well, you know, like your type one fibers do a lot of glycolysis as well, but it's mostly aerobic glycolysis. So right now, if I'm standing, like my back muscles have been actually pretty much contracted continuously for like an hour. They're not going to run out of energy because like you said, they're type one fibers. They're able to use fat there. A lot of fats being broken down, but some of the carbs is still being broken down. Like I'm using some sugar, you know, to, to, um, through glycolysis there, but then that's getting shuttled in again. We can talk energy systems and all this, but 
I don't know that if somebody, let's say you're like 90% type two versus 90% type one, I'm sure for diet, for, you know, carbohydrate use, maybe, maybe what's more likely probably the person that has a lot of type ones will just be better at using fats, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's like your type two X fibers aren't going to be doing a lot of the beta oxidation or breaking down these fatty acid chains because that they're contracting super fast you don't have time to break down the fat but people with a lot of type ones probably are just more efficient at breaking down more fats so i don't know if that's a that's actually a good question i hadn't really thought about it that way like what diet they would prefer based on the fiber type but another thing to think of is when you talk fiber types which muscles if you and i were to compare our deltoids like that might not be completely different. But if we were going to compare our quads, maybe you would have like 40% more type twos than me. So I guess you could look at whole body like percentages, like then you're getting crazy. How many muscles can we biopsy? Um, you know, like, I don't know if I want to do 30 biopsies on 30 different muscles, but good questions though. I guess the more experienced I get as a coach, the more, the less that I'm interested with, I guess the more generic stuff and the more that I'm interested with a little bit more of the conceptual things that are a little bit more, I guess, entertaining because I mean, at, at a certain point, you're like, okay, I know how to get an athlete stronger, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that it like, as much as you do need to individualize things for each athlete, the level of individualization doesn't really require you to, to learn tons and tons of really new stuff. Whereas sometimes I find, you know, like you said uh, earlier, right, you're, you're headed in this one direction, all of a sudden, some new research comes out that says, hey, maybe this isn't really the case at all maybe it's because of all of these other things and i I don't know i tend to find those things a little bit more interesting so a lot of these questions are kind of based off of uh just like (laughs) self-interest no it's good and if you have these questions and you want to spend you know like uh the next 10 years doing research with us i'm sure we could answer one or two of them (laughs) like that's the thing like questions are like that's how you get excited about this kind of stuff when i was in undergrad i remember having a notebook with like a list of questions and i would go to my advisor and one would be like do people have different fiber types or whatever you think about when you're an undergrad and he would, you know, just point me in the right direction. And I found out that 50% of my questions were answered, but 50% like people still don't know, especially in humans. Cause we do so much research in animal models and we need to do more in humans. What, uh, what is some new research that you're working on right now that, uh, that you're really excited about? Yeah, I, I, I've always got so many things going on and the bummer is with COVID and everything, our labs have actually been pretty much shut since March. So, you know, that's been months. Yeah. We were able to do some wet lab stuff here and there, but the, you know, they're not allowing us in there to do any testing on humans for research purposes, uh, even studies that we had ongoing. So I've actually, since that happened, I'm trying to figure out studies that we can do remotely where we would send equipment home with people maybe and do stuff like that. But I guess the two areas I'm interested in, in the next probably couple of years, one of them, I mean, you'd probably be interested in this, but looking at more connective tissue stuff, looking at tendons and um, the myotendinous junction. So we know like hypertrophy, right? Your muscle can get as big as it can, but it's kind of dependent on how much force that muscle can generate to the bone that can generate to your arm or whatever that's lifting. So you've got these intermediary steps of force transfer. And I don't think a lot of people know about like the myotendinous junction and how the that changes with training or with detraining. So we're actually uh, applying for to do a study with NASA right now where we're going to take animals that have flown up in space um, with SpaceX or with the even with the space shuttle back 10 years ago, they have these these animals that have been frozen, um, went up to space, let's say 30 days and look and see what happens. 30 days of total detraining, like floating in space, what happens to your myotendinous junction? Like what happens to that spot that's supposed to transfer energy? And we're thinking it's, it's probably more affected than people think. We know the muscles get smaller, bones get weaker, but what happens to that tendon is kind of an unknown question. Then that trans translates to astronauts when they come back to earth, they're in so much pain and their rehab really, if you're in space for six months and you're still exercising a little bit a day, but you're not standing against gravity, we really need to figure out kind of what happens to those tendons. And if there's any way like pharmacologically or nutrition or, or training wise, we can just keep them healthy. So, I mean, that's one thing we got going that I'm excited about, but it is an animal study. Like we're having to kind of switch gears from humans to animals if we can't do that. Uh, some of the human studies we're working on is totally different is looking at gut microbiome. Have you done any reading about that lately? Yeah, actually I'm, uh, I, I 
have done a decent amount, but not enough to really be confident enough. Like, <laughs> I feel like I have to do a really, really inordinate amount of research before I feel confident, even just talking about low levels of stuff, just because, mm-hmm. well, if people like yourself, for instance, like the, my, my like nightmare is saying something and then having someone that I respect to be like, actually, you're an idiot. <laughs> so uh, I don't say I'm, that in class. I'm, I'm not pretty, that kind I'm of teacher. Pretty, <laughs> no, 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 I know. I try to be pretty cautious about uh, anything like that. So I, I am familiar with gut microbiome, but uh, I'll be chatting with uh, Gabriella Fundero. Um, oh, yeah. Next week, I think, or this cool. week. I don't know about about that exact topic. I mean, I think the, the gut microbiome is basically all the um, the genes of all the bacteria that lives in you. So the I, the correct word, I didn't know this until a couple years ago, was microbiota. That's all the little critters yeah. that live inside of you. But so imagine, you know, we're living with billions or trillions of bacteria inside and on us. And only in the last five or six years have people started being like, I wonder how that affects performance or I wonder how that affects how you digest things. It's like, no, yeah, of course it's going to affect it. But um, I guess kind of long story short, we're trying to get a lot of elite athletes to track their gut microbiome changes over time before and after competitions and with different nutrition strategies and see how that changes. And then also looking between really fit people and really unfit people and seeing what's the deal with your gut microbiome. Is this one of those genetic predisposition things that might actually dictate your something like fiber type or your ability to gain muscle mass or fat mass or get diabetes? Like I think in again, 10 or 20 years, everybody always going to say that because that's a fair time. A lot can happen in 10 or 20 years, but it could be faster. You'll go to the doctor and you'll do your blood sample to get lipids and glucose and you'll do a stool sample. They'll probably be like, Hey, you know, you've got too much of this bacteria or this is not looking good. And maybe we need to add more fiber to your diet, or maybe we need to add more protein or less fat or whatever it is. I think we're getting to that point where, you know, athletes are going to start measuring that along with other blood measures and things like that. So anyway, we're doing a study. We're trying to just follow uh, right now it's endurance athletes. Cause that's the population we had um, access to. Uh, we published a paper end of last year. If you look up um, Dr. Greg Grosicki, he's down at Georgia Southern university where we followed an elite uh, ultra marathoner and found huge changes in his gut microbiome, you know, throughout his training. And then immediately after a hundred mile race, which you'd imagine a hundred miles um, for anybody to do that would be a huge uh, you have your body's adapting like crazy and <laughs> freaking out. But one of the bacteria that started getting like increased after and during this was a bacteria that um, eats lactate. It processes lactate. And as you know, you know, lactate oh, is wow. produced by the muscle. It's not necessarily bad. It's not like people used to think it caused cramps and stuff, but it's produced by the muscle. It gets in your bloodstream, gets to your gut. So all these little bacteria are like, Ooh, eating the lactate and then spitting out some other components that may or may not be good or bad. But what we're finding is it's probably eating the lactate and turning it into another type of little fatty acid that can be used as energy. So maybe you got these little critters inside of you that get ramped up to do, to help you. Like if you can't eat for a couple of days, maybe they're producing the energy that you need. Just like crazy stuff. Again, like that, along with all the genetic uh, gene doping stuff, I think in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see some crazy leaps in those fields. That's really interesting. With coming back to what you were talking about, some of the research on on tendons, um, that's something that's been really interesting for me because I have dealt with a handful of uh, like just tendon issues in in general with lifting. So like just the kind of achy knees, biceps tendonitis, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think generally the prescription within like lifting circles anyways is lightweight for really really high repetitions at kind of like you know just a a reasonable tempo so not like super explosive or anything Mm -hmm. um but i've always been interested in learning more about um well a, a couple things so you know one is just how do you actually really really strengthen or thicken those areas to to make them a little more resilient uh, mm-hmm. to, to force transmission. And then also just more, I guess, more robust. So you don't have to worry about any injuries. So do you have any, uh, any particular recommendations for how to strengthen those areas? Uh, if, if we do know anything about that? Yeah, I, I think you actually, 
it's funny because in in lifting circles, like you said, people will do stuff for a long time and they might not know why they do it, but it just works. And then the science catches up and like 20 years we figured out, oh, that's yeah. why you do that. Oh, like in, you know, the 1970s, people were chugging like NFL players were chugging chocolate milk. It's like, well, that has a lot of protein. That has a lot of fat. That has a lot of sugar, has a lot of calories. So that'll make you grow. That's basically the early protein shake. Um, but anyway, like back to tendons, I guess what we're finding now is if you look at a tendon, the middle part of the tendon doesn't change much. It doesn't adapt really at all. It has really low blood supply. What changes is the outside of part of the tendon. Maybe the outside 15, 20% can get bigger, thicker, stronger. Um, and that's also probably the part that gets nicked. And, and depending on if, you, if you're like, let's say you got biceps tendonitis, that thing's rubbing against you know, part of the other connective tissue in there and just causing inflammation. At some point, the outside is going to start breaking down and it's going to get weaker. Um, so I guess the moral of the story with tendons is tendons adapt really slow, whether you're adapting them to get bigger or smaller. Muscles adapt really fast. So if you get really strong at your, you know, back squat or bicep curl, whatever it is, you might notice that those tendons are the ones that are starting to, to be the, your failure spots because they're not adapting quite as fast. So yeah, if you do a lot of low, slow tempo, low weight type stuff, that's going to probably strengthen those tendons. Just like me standing up right now, if I'm in space, I'm not standing. So the tendons attached in my back, attached in, you know, everywhere are just not being used at all. Your bodies are used to just having some force put on them, you know, not a lot of force, but some just from standing. So that's what we're trying to figure out is like, what part of the tendon? Is it really deep in the tendon? Is it the outside of the tendon? Is it where the tendon connects the bone? or the tendon connects to the muscle, like where's the failure part, where's the inflammation and pain happening or what causes pain happening. Um, but yeah, these are big questions that I think are going to be cool. It is hard to study tendons in humans too. Like I think right. if you talk to Dr. Galpin, like he had a tendon biopsy on his patellar tendon. Um, <laughs> and uh, did he tell you about that? Yeah. Uh, basically it took years to heal because he was squatting and stuff. And if you're not squatting, like if you're an older person, you never, all you do is get up and out of a chair that will probably heal relatively quickly. But if you keep, you know, not injuring it, but micro damaging it over time, it just takes so long to heal. Do you know if utilizing like BFR would, would have any sort of benefit for, for tendons? That's another, I did one study on BFR too. So you're like bringing up a lot of stuff I did a while ago. I need to kind of remember, I know that's probably the idea cause you're doing, you know, relatively low resistance but you're still getting that like metabolic uh, stress on the muscle itself if you're occluding it um but i don't know how that affects tendons i don't even think actually when we get off here i'm gonna do a quick google scholar search and see if there is anything on bfr and tendons i'm sure there is but i think that's actually a good good way to go down because most people use bfr for kind of you know rehab type stuff nowadays i think i see a lot of people using it to get jacked which to me I don't know how much of a difference that's going to make, to be honest. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, I've seen it mostly like, well, any, at least talked about um, online from like a rehab setting. But um, yeah, I just, I wasn't sure if there was anything specifically on, on tendons and BFR. It's um, a good question. And it's, it makes sense too, because you can't BFR like your glutes, but you could, you know, BFR your, your knee joints, or your elbows, mm -hmm. places where you could have tendon issues. So that makes right. sense. Um, so one thing that uh, I wanted to touch on was the difference between, or sorry, not the difference, but the, the relationship between rate of force development and one RM strength. So like one thing that's kind of always bugged me is people criticizing um, like Louis Simmons. I, I get the guy's not perfect. And, you know, like I'm not even, I don't, I'm not a West side guy. I don't really follow tons of their stuff, but I do think that he had a lot of really interesting, uh, I can't think of the word, but he, he's contributed or contributions. That's the word, mm -hmm. uh, to the sport of powerlifting. And he talks a lot about speed and rate of force development. And then I always, people are hear people arguing to counter that. Well, this is slow strength. It's not going to make a big difference. Speed work isn't really a big deal. And I tend to agree that doing a lot of speed work isn't a big deal. It's probably going to help you more as like a recovery tool because you're controlling load, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of rate of force production, how does rate of force production translate into your one RM? Like, is there any sort of benefit to trying to improve RFD if, if your primary goal is, uh, is maximal strength? 
trying to think again i don't have any hard data on a lot of this but i mean i can just say from how muscles work that like i think your hypothesis is probably correct that rate of force development training or speed training or power training probably has its place in power lifters you know utility box you're probably going to do it sometimes but that's probably not going to be the make or break for your one rm it's you know like you said it's slow when you're moving a weight like you remember I don't know if you, the forced velocity curve, right? Uh, the hill is forced velocity curve. When you're moving fast, you can't move a lot of weight. When you're moving slow, that's where your highest forces. And then eccentric load is where your highest forces can be. And that's independent of speed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I wish I had a better answer for this, but yeah, I, I, I would tend to say that more rate of force development or speed trainings that might affect your one RM, but not for reasons of muscles itself. It could be recovery. It could be neurological stimulation that you're getting used to. It could be all kinds of things like that. They're just, that wouldn't be the first thing that I would do. If I was going for one RMs, I wouldn't speed training would be like third or fourth on the list of things I would probably be thinking about. We're coming up to the hour mark and that was pretty much actually everything that, uh, that I wanted to chat about, to be honest, <laughs> we, we got yeah. through quite a bit. Um, we covered a lot. Yeah. So I guess one last question uh, that I like to ask everyone is what's one opinion you have that sort of goes against the grain is maybe a little bit controversial um, that, uh, that you kind of put your stamp on. I think I, so I think my science opinion is that as you age, like older age, 75, 80 plus, your fiber type does shift from slow to fast, which is not intuitive to people. Now, is that affecting, you know, somebody's ability to get up and out of a chair and move around and stuff? That's probably more related to neurological things. But I think you have a slow to fast fiber type shift when you get older. I guess tapering or tapering would be something I would talk about as far as training. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, tapering has got a fair bit of publicity. But you know, I was a, a swimmer and water polo player in, you know, early 2000s. And our coach never talked about reduced volume, increased intensity before competition really ever. Maybe I had just bad coaches. <laughs> but uh, I think the idea of tapering before performance in power sports and endurance sports has been overlooked and rest and recovery in general. Like I said, now in the, in the last couple of years, I think that that's actually gotten a lot more publicity and it's important. But it's not all about, you know, frequency, intensity, type, you know, volume. It, the progression part of your training where you're actually throwing in these these low low volume, high intensity periods are super important. So, I mean, I don't know. You're in the powerlifting field more now. Do you feel like tapering has got its, uh, um, you know, share of how important it is? Yeah, I, I do. I Sometimes I think it gets emphasized a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the times I think a really common, uh, trend that you'll see in, in powerlifting programs is four weeks on one week off, mm-hmm. right? Which, which ends up being an entirely arbitrary, um, mm-hmm. allocation, right. Of, of training to, to recovery time. And so I'm a really big fan of, I guess, since I found out who Mike Desher was, you know, quite a while back, um, I've been a really big fan of his approach where mm-hmm. essentially he looks at it from uh, a number of exposures, right? So essentially you, you expose the athlete to a training stimulus and you try and keep it, you know, pretty similar. And the primary increase is going to be, or the primary change is going to be in, in load increases. Um, and then you just map out how long it takes for him to peak, right? Mm-hmm. So whether you're in a volume block or a strength block or a speed or whatever block you're, you're talking about, um, the relative time to peak is going to be pretty consistent. And, and that's, that's mirrored my own experience as well. And so when he put it together, he was obviously he's way further ahead than I am. So um, when I initially found out about him and I was reading about this stuff, I was like, Oh, you know, it filled in a lot of gaps for me. And so I, I tend to think that people take too many deloads um, because it's like, you know, if you're doing three weeks on one week off, that's 25% of your training year. Mm-hmm. not training right um and a lot of the times like sometimes yeah people do need that but other times like i've got an athlete for instance who she needs a and we don't even do a deload we do like a pivot i call it a pivot um every eight weeks mm-hmm. you know so she has eight weeks of hard training 
and then we do a pivot, which is essentially we keep the intensity really high. Like, you know, maybe we'll do, well, not really high, but let's say we'll do three sets of triples um, for their main work at like 85%. And then we do some, some volume work with less specific exercises. Mm -hmm. And that would be part of the deload, right? So it's more a decrease in volume, but it's not a traditional deload. Um, and, and then I guess the tapers, I don't yeah. know that I do a traditional taper. I think what you're talking about is pretty much like tapering, right? De as long as you're keeping intensity. Yeah. Up, right. Yeah. 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 But I, even, even like for a meet, so I tend to actually not necessarily, I do taper, but it's more like once you count the number of exposures, I guess, to, to peak, you can mm -hmm. time it out. So you can say, okay, this person needs 15 exposures before they peak. And so you just time it out. So their 15th exposure would be on the meet day. Mm -hmm. And, and so you do have a little bit of a taper that way, but not, not tons. And it's more so just your natural progression into it. Like I don't tend to cut a lot of volume. I tend to keep it all the way through. And, and I mm -hmm. found that that's been a lot more reliable in terms of like, making about a 5% performance increase on, on meet day versus in the gym. That's what months. I was going to say. You could probably expect about a 5% increase from doing the taper, right? Uh, yeah. Which is huge. You know, that's, that's pretty big compared to your normal training. So, yeah, well, I know I, I read about, uh, Chad Wesley Smith. Do you know who he is from juggernaut? Mm, sounds familiar. Yeah. He's uh he's a pretty crazy athlete. I think he's retired from powerlifting now, but, mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, he would get like a 10% carryover, like just mm -hmm. some crazy nonsense. Like he'd hit like 850 in the gym for his squat, but then he'd hit like 965 in the meet. And you're just like, what? Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, that's the thing I think with tapering the mechanisms, people are still trying to figure that out or deloading. Um, we wrote a paper five or six years ago and it was a tapering with endurance athletes though. It was with a, a cross country team. We actually had them do a three week taper, which was way more than their coach wanted to, but three week volume down intensity up the last few days, they pretty much, you know, did nothing before the competition, their muscle fiber size of the type two fibers increased like faster and bigger than anything you've ever seen. Like in three weeks, the biggest change in human muscle fiber type that you'll see is actually from, from tapering because they were so overtrained going into this, that their type two fibers were so small just three weeks of taking that volume down, like they exploded. And I'll bet with powerlifting, you maybe wouldn't see that that big of a difference, but within a week of deloading, if you're especially a little bit overtrained, you, you might see more hypertrophy than you'd expect. Actually, that's interesting. So I read a paper a little while ago, like this year, and um, it was on supercompensation and hypertrophy. Did, did mm -hmm. you, have you heard about that? Yeah, though that's kind of what I'm um, talking yeah. about. But yeah, it's like a super compensation phase. Crazy. Yeah, that was the first time that I've ever heard that for hypertrophy, which was mm -hmm. kind of interesting because I've I've heard about like I know Charles Poliquin back in the day. I was I was never really I never really followed him that much, but I know he'd have these hypertrophy camps where he would uh, just train people like overtrain them essentially, like by mm -hmm. by a large a large degree and. Uh, and then they would just sleep and eat for a week after. And he's like, yeah, average muscle mass put on is like 15 pounds. And you're like, I was always like, I don't buy that for a second, but I still did believe that there was kind of something to that at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, but I mean, I'm nowhere near smart enough to really tease out what those that, details are. So <laughs> that's back to your, uh, that's the AMPK mTOR thing, right? Like yeah. all the time when you're overtrained, AMPK is probably overloading that. And then as soon as you like take a day off or a week off, boom, mTOR is going to be like, I need to catch up. I need to get those muscles bigger. So mm -hmm. it's a quick way to get hypertrophy if you're somewhat overtrained probably. Yeah. That's really interesting. So um, where, where can our listeners find you? Um, yeah, you can find me on social media. I'm usually on Instagram um, at Dr. Jimmy Bagley. My lab is at muscle Fizz lab um, also on Twitter a little bit as well. And then our website is kin.sfsu.edu. If you're interested, we do have um, a graduate program, master's program in kinesiology, where if you're interested in muscle physiology or, or strength and conditioning, any of this type of stuff, uh, we are accepting applicants year round. So and that's kind of what I'm into now. And I really appreciate you having me on here. It was a good conversation. I hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one last thing is, do you need any like volunteers or anything like that for any research just so we can kind of blast it out there? 
Uh, that's the thing I wish we did right now, but with the whole COVID thing, everything's kind of on hold, but guaranteed. So if you go to you know, my, my muscle physiology lab at muscle phys lab, um, Instagram, I'll post the calls for participants and all that kind of stuff on there too. So probably the best way to keep a hold on that, but we're gearing, we're, I'm ready to get back in the lab and do stuff. I can't wait, but you know, we got to wait a little bit longer here. That's awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for jumping on the call. It was really interesting. There was a lot of really cool pieces uh, that, that I got for sure. And that uh, I guess are going to inspire a handful of new articles from me. So <laughs> appreciate cool. it. man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later, Daniel. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.